you should expect them to break in a broken world. That's what we're going to be talking about in a moment. All right, good illustration to begin with. All right. You can turn to Romans chapter 8. Daniel, thank you for introducing that. Let's go back to verse 1 and let's start again. Uh, No, we won't do that. Last week, uh, I think the lesson, when I came with this lesson, it was not one I would normally choose. All right, I'm going to get adjusted here. Nope. I thought you were going to help me. I don't know how to do this. I feel like it's too low. All right, is that good? All right, sorry. All right, so what was I saying? Last week, the, the lesson wasn't one I would normally choose, but I let the scriptures choose it for me, which is good. And I was surprised that it seemed to strike a chord for some. I received several texts right after the lesson. Within, within an hour, I had several texts. And probably it has to do with the unusual times that we're in. I try not to... Uh, <laughs> I try not to uh, make mention of all the things that are going on that you know that's going on, but I think the, the idea of a physical separation from one another, which is now the normal thing that's being promoted, uh, the constant I don't want to the constant information that's given to us about a virus thing <laughs> am I okay I'm okay all right good all right so now I can wander around a little bit but I think all these things that are going on just bring in front of us this brokenness of a world around us. It, 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 it's even more real than normal, I guess. I guess we go through life normally and we think things are running fine and smooth and then something happens in our life that, that reminds us this is not normal. But we have been in a, in a, in a uh, system for the last uh, few months where everything is obviously broken. And so this passage really brings that out. One person wrote, was talking about how he, over the years, has um, talked to friends at work who are like-minded and just say, you know, life is kind of like a Saturday night life, Saturday night live skit. It's just all these crazy things going on. And he said, we're subjected to farcical and arbitrary frustration. In a way, it's unrealistic for us to expect anything but a regular dose of SNL in our labors. SNL, Saturday Night Live. And that's really how life is. We go through life and, and suddenly something hits us and it's either tragic and sad or it's just so funny that we, how, how can the, these things happen to us? It's, it's amazing. And the world gives us answers that are false. And this is where we really need to clarify our thinking with the scriptures rather than what the world is telling us. And the world tells us a lot of things and we don't even notice it. it just, it's just part of our, the, the cultural 
noise that just keeps going on in our, in our minds. Uh, things like uh, an asteroid will one day come and destroy the earth, crash into the earth and kill, you know, everyone or, you know, like it did many years ago with dinosaurs, you know, all, all these things. Or uh, when I was growing up, if the earth, if we don't do something about the population, we're just going to start, everyone's going to starve to death. And that's when the population was half of what it is now. And, and we're still got plenty of food. I, I remember hearing during my growing up years how crowded China was, only to find out when I went there how much open fields there were. If you go to Hong Kong and places like that, just like New York, it's crowded, but you get just outside of Hong Kong, get on a train, and it's just emptiness. You know, miles and miles of nothing but feels that people are growing things in an occasional house every now and then. Uh, the oceans in Fiji, the oceans are going to rise and cover, cover the oceans and, and displace millions of people. And we hear all these type of things, and I find the world is either overly pessimistic or overly optimistic. It goes to one degree or the other. It's either everyone's going to die, you know, it's a, it's every, it's a, life is a disaster, or everyone's just going to, you know, if we just do these things, it's going to be a utopia. Everyone's going to love one another. And so billions of dollars are spent to save the planet uh, with little change. And the answer is, well, let's spend a few billion more. Or uh, the optic, uh, 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 overly optimistic couple who, were, who was going to go around the earth on a Earth, around the planet on a bicycle, just promoting let's love each other, only to be killed by an extremist group somewhere on their trip. And so it's either, hey, let's just, you know, if we'll just smile and love each other, everything's going to be fine, or it's going to be a total disaster. And so my point is, and like I, I try to say, and I always have to correct, you know, say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, as I said last week, that there are things we can't do or should do to help our earth. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we, we can. The biblical answer is that we are to be good stewards. And it's a word we don't use much. But we are to be good stewards. In other words, we need to view everything around us as we are the managers. God is the owner. God owns the earth. God owns my body. God owns everything, and my job is just to manage these things as best as I can. So we're to properly manage our time, and we talk about time management. Okay, we're supposed to uh, do that. Our health, our money, our planet, our resources, all these things we are to be stewards of. Not saviors of, but stewards of them. And so when it comes to evil and sin and brokenness, the Bible tells us, be wise as serpents. You need to be wise. Don't go through life naive. You need to be a wise person. And we expect the poor to always be with us because Jesus said that. But we then use our time and our resources and our efforts to help poor, the poor, even though we know they'll always be with us. We know we're not going to eradicate poverty. But we know we are still, as good stewards, supposed to help those in need. And the, the, the gospel, we need to be sharing God's good news with people, 
even though we know the majority are going to reject it or distort it. And even though that's true, it doesn't say, well, people are going to reject it so I don't share. Even though they're going to reject it or even take the good news and distort it, we still have this obligation as stewards to share with others. And to do this, it takes faith. It takes an act of faith, and really the only biblical type of faith there is or that we're to put into practice is act of faith. That's, that's all there is. Right? There is a dead faith, and, but we're not encouraged to practice that. We're encouraged to put into practice faith, which is always active. We don't drift through life, but we're actively taking our faith, what we're learning, and we're putting it into action. So when you learn to be a good steward, then you look at your life and say, what do I need to change? What do I need to do in order to be a good steward? And we begin to think of truth based on what the Scripture tells us and not what the world is telling us. And so in many ways, we're, we might be able to join others uh, to help in a situation but our motives are coming and our directions coming from a whole different uh, direction uh, as we're taking a look at a need and saying that need, needs to, that need needs to be fulfilled. We need to work on that because God has commissioned me to be a steward of my life, not because I'm trying to save the planet. I can't even save people. That's God's job. I share with people. God does the saving. And so we read and we apply the scriptures. And this passage that we're going to today, Hopeful Groaning, chapter 8, verse 22 through 25, says it's talking not only about the world, as we saw last week groaning, but we ourselves are groaning. Let's read this passage together. Am I on? No, I'm not on. I got to be here. I'm on. I'm on. Turn it on. <laughs> we need to be good stewards. There we go. All right. <laughs> All right. Good. Now we're on. Thank you. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adopt our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is not seen, that, excuse me, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not ha yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we, we have this word groaning. What kind of groaning is going on? And there's a, there's a range of emotions that this word groan uh, talks about. It can be translated in different ways. Uh, for instance, in Mark chapter 7, the, it, 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 uh, Jesus says he looks up into heaven and with a deep sigh said to him. And that's that, this is the same word. So this word could be just a deep sigh. Or it could be in James chapter 5 can be translated grumbling. Don't grumble with each other. It's the same word. Don't groan with each other. Don't grumble with each other. Or here's another example, and there's a whole lot uh, where it's talking about obeying our uh, leaders so that, uh, so that their work, not their world, their work will be a joy, not a burden. So it can be translated burden also. And so this word can be uh, 
can be uh, translated grief, sadness, frustration, pain. It can even, it can even be translated uh, to have a pleasant feeling, a pleasant feeling. And it all depends on the context. As you read the context, and this moaning, this groaning has to be translated in different ways. One uh, writer said this, all creation is groaning together in a great symphony of sighs. And so we, we see this groaning that's taking place, and we have to kind of figure out what, what is the groaning that's taking place in the context here. Uh, this groaning together is described, um, uh, and, and I think the message that we get from the world is it is a, we're, we're in the middle of dying. We're in the middle of having death throes. But the Bible here says this groaning is not death throes, but it is childbirth. Um, something is coming, he says. Paul says something is on its way. Something wonderful is about to happen. And as we saw in the previous verses last week, creation is eagerly awaiting for the children, God's children, to be brought into their final uh, freedom. Uh, they are, th this is a, a new creation that's coming. Uh, there's new heavens. There's new earth coming. And what all that means, I don't know in particulars, but something wonderful is on its way. And so Paul is saying it's kind of like the pains of childbirth. It's, it's using this personification again, saying the, the earth, the world, is, is going through the pains of childbirth. It's wondrous. It's painful. It's awesome. And when it's completed, there'll be great joy. There's a, a groaning of positive outcomes. And I was thinking about this childbirth and thinking about all us men and how we respond to childbirth. And, yeah, I've seen pictures of men literally running away. Uh, I've heard of some who, who said, and if you, if you ever, men, if you've not experienced this, don't do this. They'll say, does that really hurt that much? That's not a good thing to say when your wife's in the middle of giving birth. Does it really hurt that much? No, don't ask. Or, or I heard of one, one guy said, uh, he said, uh, how much long do you think this is going to take? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, these people are not thinking. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of do that with the world. The earth is groaning. We're in the midst of this groaning, and we, we react in silly ways. Uh, the earth is, is, is all going to, you know, it's going to be terrible. Uh, terrible things are happening. We're, we're about to die. The planet is just burning up, is going to die, and it's going to explode, or whatever goes through your mind. And Paul says, no, listen, it's, it's childbirth. Yes, it's painful. Yes, there's groaning. Yes, there's moaning. But it's for something good that's going to go on. Something good is going to happen. And so as you're going through this struggle, as you're going through this pain right now, realize it's like childbirth, not death throes. It's like childbirth. You're heading towards something that's wonderful and good. It's a sighing and a groaning that's not pessimistic or negative or hopeless, but there's a wonderful hope waiting for us. Wow. What is this great hope, our great hope? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says is there's three great words. I don't know what they, words, foundational concepts, 
And he says they're faith, hope, and love. And we spend a lot of time on faith, and we spend a lot of time on love, and we don't spend that much time on hope. It's, it's hard for us to, I think it's hard for us to grasp hope. And maybe I'm speaking for myself better than I can grasp the other two. But hope is waiting for something. Biblical hope is I'm waiting for something that I'm sure is going to happen. I'm waiting for something that I'm certain is going to happen. And that's not a wish. It's not a wish. It's not like, I really hope something good happens. It's not, that's how we use it in English. I really hope, I really wish, I, I, I want this to happen, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. It'd be really nice if it does. It's not that at all. Biblical hope is I'm certain, and I'm certain because it's based in God's promises. God said, this is going to happen. As I read his word, he says, this is going to happen. This is promises. And so if God said it, then I'm going to believe that he's going to follow through. And so I look forward to what, he's, what he is promising. And he promises something, and I'm certain it's going to happen. Because God has always kept his promise. And so this hope that he talks about here is based in really three promises. And I, I termed them a harvest, an adoption, and a redemption. And we'll look at these. The first one is the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 23 it says, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And that's a very Jewish thought. If you haven't read the Old Testament, you might not know what that means. It's a, it's a strange word. It's something that we, I, I, I struggled all week trying to get a parallel. And maybe some of you who know uh, the Old Testament better than me and thought about it longer than I have can come with a, a better modern parallel to it. But it's hard for me to, to come up with what is this first fruits? And what you find is in uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, God says, now, when the harvest is about to come in, you, you are to cut the first sheaf, the first part of that harvest, and you bring it to a priest. And the priest is supposed to take this, and it says, wave it before the Lord. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. You know, it, how do you, I guess you could do like this, you know, maybe both hands, I don't know. But some way you... It's an expression up to God that, that what this is is really yours. And I recognize by having this, this little amount of my whole vineyard or my whole produce there, that this little bit, yes, is yours. I'm, 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 I'm waving it. I'm presenting it to you. And that means that the rest of my stuff is yours too. It's not just that. And so as it was an act of consecration, it dedicated the whole harvest to God. Uh, this first cutting represented the whole, a, a small representing the whole. But here is interesting. It's not us giving to God or presenting to God, but it's God giving to us. He gives us his spirit, and not just a part, but a whole. It says, we are the fir first fruits... It could be translated, first fruits, which is the Spirit. We, are, we have the first fruit, which is the Spirit. And so we have this, not partially, but in a whole way. Now, individually, we may not be able, we, we, we can't ha have the full expression of the Spirit, but collectively, the church, and I'm, I'm talking about the church 
as a whole in a group this size and throughout the world, God's spirit is expressed throughout the world. And that's why we need one another in that expression of it. Because you have an expression of the spirit that I don't have. And I have an expression that you don't have. And we need each other. So together we express the spirit as a whole. And we have this, this first fruits. He's, he's changing us. He's molding us. He's making us more into the image of Christ. He's bringing out love, joy, peace, the fruit of the spirit. He's bringing that out in me, but he's bringing it out better in us as a whole. Uh, I've said this many times. Uh, my wife, Julia, expresses compassion far better than I do. Now, and David's one just went, <laughs> yes, she does. But uh, even though she expresses it better, she has taught me how to express it better, how to show it better. And I'm far behind, but I need her, and she needs me, and we need each other. And some of you do far better than me in other areas. But together, we're expressing the first fruits of the Spirit in all these ways. And having this first fruit causes, Paul says, a great longing. When I have this, there's a great longing in me. It's kind of like walking, you know, walking past your barbecue when you're, when you're slow smoking or you're barbecuing some, uh, I, uh, some um, barbecue. <laughs> you barbecue barbecue. <laughs> and now everyone's hungry. And you smell that slow cook going on and you just, oh, I just can't wait. Until, until I can eat it. But you have to wait because it's not ready yet. And so this, this is the, the longing that he's talking about. Or it's like in the dead of winter when it's cold and you're up in North Dakota at 30 degrees below zero. Uh, Tim can relate to that with me. And you look online and you see a, a, a video of a, the South Pacific and you kind of long for that wondrous warm weather. But you have to wait because the trip isn't planned yet. It's not, it's not finished yet. You're, you haven't done it yet. And so Paul is saying here, there's this inward groaning as we wait eagerly. There's something that we, we really want. And it's there, and we believe it's going to come, and we're expecting it to come, but we're longing for it. We're groaning for it. And what do we long and groan, groan for? And he says here, our adoption as sons. And immediately you say, well, I thought you told us back in verse 15 that we are God's children. We're, yeah, immediately, this is my, I was sharing this with my mother. Or she said, what are you going to preach on? And I told her, and she opened up her Bible and started reading it. And then she said, well, I thought you already said we're adopted. And now it says we're waiting for adoption. What's going on here? All throughout the Bible, there's a this is sense of we have something now, but we don't have it yet. We have it, but we don't have it. So it's, it's kind of that concept, too. And he does say, yes, we, we are adopted now, but later on there's going to be a fuller expression of this adoption. We exist in the heavenly realms right now. Did you know that? The Bible tells us over in Ephesians, we are in the heavenly realms, and yet there's going to be a fuller expression of it in the future. A um, couple of illustrations that might help us understand how we can have it now, but have it better later. 
uh, years ago, our third child was adopted, and we received her on her second day of birth. I think it was her the third day, but she was 48 hours old. She's about two, year, two days old. And we took her into our home, and from that moment, we treated her as our child. We loved her as our child. We cared for her as our child. We spoke of her as our child. All those things. And yet, we were only prospective adoptive parents until we stood before a judge about a year and a half later, it took that long, and had to sign the papers, talk to the judge and sign the papers. And then the full adoption took place. But if you would have asked either one of us and our children, uh, who's this child that you have? We never said, this is our prospective adoptive child. <laughs> no, this is our little girl, all right? This is my sister. This is not, she one day in the future will be my, our, our, my sister. No, it's now, now and later. In the Roman culture, in Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome, there was a ceremony that when a boy became a man, he went through the ceremony where he was given a, a pure white toga. He, he wore a child's toga up to this time. And he was given this pure white toga, which, which signified his full rights as a, as a son now. And, and instead of him being, uh, he, was, he was a son before, but, but at this point he had the full rights to uh, inherit from his, his, his uh, parents. Uh, they went down to the forum or wherever they, they were in their city and put his name in the book uh, that, that signified he, that he now had full rights. Now, if you would have asked him before, who's your father? He would have pointed to the same man. But later after the ceremony, he had the full rights. And I think this is what this is talking about because of the next line where he talks about our, the redemption of our bodies. We have, we're adopted now. You're God's child now. But there's going to be a fuller sense of it that's going to come, uh, take place later. Uh, and it's this redemption of our body, which I think is talking about the resurrection of our bodies. And this resurrection is different than resuscitation. You see, Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, he was, in a sense, resuscitated. He, he still had his old body with his old pain and his own old agonies that he would later on die in the future. So he wasn't really resurrected. When Jesus was resurrected, it was with a body that would never die. It was with a glorious body. It was something different, completely different. And so he's saying, look, all the, the things that we go through right now, we, we, are new cre creation. we are a new creation right now. But there's going to be a newness later that you can't even fully comprehend. It's a, it's a body that will no longer decay. It's a body where our emotions are healed. You know, how much, how, how much pain do you give yourself in your emotions? We all do. We all hurt not only physical pain, but we hurt emotional pain. And we can't Im imagine a, a time where our minds and our emotions will be fully where they should be, the way God created us to be. We'll be ourselves, but at our fullest capacities. You know, Christians have often been um, criticized as only being concerned or focused on some future heavenly bliss. 
It's as if or we're characterized as people who have little concern about sickness and poverty, poverty and injustice and prejudice. We just have our minds on, on other things. We're simple-minded people who don't face the realities of life. As we sing the song, we'll understand it better by and by while all those around us suffer. And I think that's unfair on several levels, and I won't go into all the levels. But I just think about it. Who, it's Christians who have clothed millions of people. It's Christians who have started hospitals and orphanages and, and uh, adoption uh, uh, centers. It's, it's Christians who volunteer millions of hours um, in medical service going to people who can't afford medical service and going out throughout the world and helping people in that way. So I don't believe that we're so heavenly focused that we're of no earthly good. But what keeps us going in this broken world, in this fallen world that's often painful, is the hope of our salvation. It's the hope in which we were saved, in which we look forward to. Yes, we do look forward to something that the world can't look forward to, but we're not so heavenly focused that we aren't dealing with the realities of our life right now. So Paul said, in hope we were saved. It's a strange way of saying it. Salvation is something in the past. It's something presently going on, and it's something that will happen in the future. We were saved when we heard the good news and we responded to it in faith. We were saved that we can look back to a point in our life and say, that's when... I became a Christian. That's when my sins were washed away. But we're currently in a process of salvation, and this is what I think Philippians is talking about when he says work out your own salvation. You're working out this salvation to its fullest expression as you mature in Christ, as you put salvation into practice. It's not just something I'm saved and now I live my life, but I'm saved and that affects my life now. And that affects how, as Rondell was saying, how I love other people, how I treat other people. And so we're maturing in Christ. And then we'll be saved one day to a fuller completion, a, a heavenly reward that we can't even think of, we can't even imagine. He will remove us from a tired and weary earth. We'll be renewed completely as the earth seems to be renewed also. And we don't have it now. And so he says, so you will wait patiently for it. Let me just tie this up this way. When you hear the bad news of the week, this week, next week, six weeks from now, 1,600 weeks from now, whatever, when you hear the bad news of how everything is going terrible, are you going to look at that from now on and say, it's the end. We're in the death throes. Woe is us. If you do, you're listening to the world. You're not listening to God. God says, look at those pains. Look at that suffering. It's real. It's happening. But it's birth pains. Something good is coming. This is just your, this is, this is just letting you know something great that you can't even imagine is going to happen. So right now, live your life in the midst of those birth pains. Live your life the way you're instructed to live. But it's not the end. It's not disaster. 
something good's coming. I'm going to back up one verse in my paraphrase to kind of pull this all together. Now, on the basis of hope, the creation lives in a sure and certain expectation that it will be emancipated from this slavery of decay and destruction that now runs rampant all through its system and will one day merge into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For it is as plain as the nose on your face that every part of creation is intensely unsettled in a chorus of groanings and sighs, like early contractions anticipating childbirth. And it's happening right now. Not only the creation, but even more, we ourselves, while possessing the Spirit as a first fruits, a foretaste of what is to come, we have a heartache and a longing. And I can't wait for it to happen, excitement, for our final adoption to be completed by that glorious rans ransoming of our bodies. For when we were saved, we were convinced of these wonderful expectations. We call it hope. And don't expect in this world to see these expectations. It wouldn't be expectations any longer, would it? If, however, we can't see what we know is going to happen, we can bravely endure trying times while waiting in such excitement that we can hardly sit still. God bless us as we go out into the world and experience the pain of childbirth. Something good is about to happen.